I haven't been able to do that in quite some time, but I just really enjoy doing that. But to begin, I would ask that you'd follow me, if you will, into the hypothetical life of a young athlete who I've named Alex. No, maybe I should put that disclaimer there. Any, any coincidence of names, that's all just that, just a coincidence. So if you're Alex, I'm not talking about you. He possessed exceptional talent and potential in the world of track and field. He consistently displayed remarkable speed and agility. His coaches and teammates alike saw him as a rising star with a bright future ahead. However, as Alex grew older, he started to become complacent. He began to believe that his natural abilities, although great, that they would be alone enough to carry him to success. And as a result, he began to ignore his training. He skipped his workouts. He ignored his coach's advice and even neglected his physical fitness outside of official practices. He became overconfident in his talent and underestimated the importance of consistent effort and discipline. Now, at first, his performance didn't noticeably suffer as his raw talent still allowed him to outshine many of his competitors. But as time went on, the other athletes who had been diligently working hard began to catch up. They were putting in the hours, focusing on their form and technique, strengthening their bodies while Alex kind of did his own thing. Soon enough, Alex's running form began to deteriorate and he began to be plagued by injuries. The once promising athlete began to lose his races and failed to meet the expectations that were placed upon him. The coaches and his teammates expressed their concerns, urging him to return to his disciplined training routine and to incorporate the lessons that he had been learning all these years. But Alex was too stubborn to listen. He stubbornly clung to the belief that he could rely solely on his natural abilities to succeed. Over time, his talent alone wasn't enough. His dreams of achieving greatness started to slip away. The competitions he once dominated were now filled with disappointed finishes and shattered hopes. Alex's story ties in on what we've been talking about so far in Hebrews chapter 12. As we began this series, we looked at being in the race of faith. God calls us to run in this race of faith. It's the metaphor that he has chosen to use to characterize the Christian life. We learned that it takes motivation and preparation, determination, fixation upon Christ. But all athletes need training, don't they? We'd be a fool to go to an athletic competition without any training. And discipline, as we learned last week, is God's training program. Though rigorous, though sometimes painful, we know that when we are being disciplined by God, that he loves us, that he's training us, and that he desires to reward us. And although Alex's story here is hypothetical, there is a kernel of truth to it. What kind of athlete would ignore his training and perform on their own? Well, I guess the same could be asked of us. What Christian would ignore the training that God has tailor-made just for them? Make no mistake, we are in a race. 
The passage makes it clear. There are other passages in the New Testament that describes this Christian life as a race. Don't misunderstand. This is not a situation where you're a Christian and trying to decide you want to be in the race at all, whether this is your thing. No, running the race is what it means to be a Christian. When you surrendered your life to Christ, God regenerated your heart, he justified you, and then he hand-plucked you and put you in the arena. You can hear it? Can't you hear it? Did you hear the spectators? The great cloud of witnesses that are around us, cheering us on by their life and example, Can't you see through the eyes of faith Christ beckoning you to cross the finish line? The Christian life is not passive. Anyone who says so is not giving you the whole counsel of God. It's time to start running, Christian. Youth members who come back from camp, it's not over. You're in this race and it continues on. And then you can take what you've learned at camp, the discipline and the admonition and the training that God gave you and apply it to your life into this race. As we're being disciplined, discipline's never fun. We're being trained. So it's incumbent upon us, Christian, to incorporate God's training program into our life. And that's where we pick up this passage this morning. In it, we'll see three different ways that we can incorporate God's training into our lives and in the Christian community around us. And we do it so that we can run well. We do it so we can make it all the way to the end. Let's look at this one first way to incorporate discipline into your life. And the first is be strong And help strengthen others. Take your discipline. Take your training. Strengthen yourself with it. And then in turn strengthen others. So let's look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. I'm going to start reading. Verses 12 through 13. Therefore. Maybe we should stop there for a second. I always get hung up on those conjunctions. Therefore. This is a word that links what was just said. To what is coming up. Now remember. This is a sermon that's being preached at this time. And like a good preacher uses good transitions to move from one point to the next, or at least he's supposed to help bring you along that way. So the preacher in Hebrews is transitioning us. He's taking us from what we've just learned. And what was that? Discipline. God's training program. In fact, verse 11, he says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So in light of what we've learned about discipline, in light of the fact that he is assuming now that the people listening to the sermon, which was most likely the church that met in Rome, but it means you now, he's assuming that you're going to be trained by God's discipline. You won't try to avoid it, but you would allow the Lord to do these things. You'll take it now and move into what he's going to talk about next. And the first thing that he says in verse 12 is strengthen. Strengthen your hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. This is an imperative in the scripture. It's not just a, hey, you might want to think about 
strengthening yourself with the discipline that you just had. No, it's imperative. It's a command. You strengthen yourself. He says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. I love this. It's like drooping hands. Anybody's ever been in a race or have seen a race, especially a marathon toward the end, where the runners are exhausted. They're not in perfect form anymore as they cross that finish line. They droop. Their hands hang low. They're exhausted. He's like, strengthen those hands that are drooping and weak. Strengthen your knees that are feeble. Have you ever had your knees buckle out from under you? I, the older I get, the more my knees start to buckle a little bit. I've noticed that, and it just doesn't matter what I do. I could just get out of the bed in the morning or whatever. Oh, the knee goes out from under you. But anyone that's been in any kind of athletic competition or even just training in a gym or whatever knows full well what it's like to have your knees buckle. You're in the middle of doing something. You rely on your knees. Anyone who's had knee surgery or knee replacement, you know full well how much your body relies upon your knees. Your knees need to be strong. Of course, being a runner, you need to have strong knees. But he's giving us this image that the church here, this community, because of the persecution, because of the struggle, which is nothing more than the discipline of the Lord, is beginning to be exhausted. They're slowing their pace. Their arms are starting to droop, and their knees are starting to buckle. Another word that you could use from that from the original is tottering knees or faltering knees. You're starting to get off course. And when your form is off, you slow down. You end up working harder than you actually need to. And before long, you give up and stop. But what he's doing here in this passage is actually preaching from a text. He's preaching from Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4. And I would love for, since he is going through all the trouble of quoting an Old Testament passage, I'd like for us to look at this Old Testament passage. So if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35, we're going to look at verse 3, and then we're going to really jump to verse 4 after that. Now, there are times where you'll read a New Testament author, and he's quoting an Old Testament passage. Sometimes he's quoting directly out of the Hebrew text. Other times they're quoting out of the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. Other times they're just paraphrasing. And in this case, he's kind of paraphrasing a little, but you can see where he's coming from in this passage. The prophet says, encourage the exhausted. Man, when you're exhausted, don't you need some encouragement? Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble then the question would be, to what end? Because here the church or the, the, the uh, Old Testament body of believers, Israel, is going through and will be going through some serious judgment and persecution. And he's reminding them as you go through this to strengthen those who are feeble, encourage the exhausted. To what end? Verse 4. Say to those with anxious heart. Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come and he will save you. This is so important here and it really kind of has this eschatological sense, this forward looking when the God brings consummation to all things. So when the Hebrew preacher in the book of Hebrews is saying, 
you know, fix your drooping, your drooping hands and stabilize your knees. He's saying you need to look forward to what is yet to come. He's hearkening back to this passage. He says salvation is coming. God will save you. He said God will bring recompense. What's recompense? It's to make amends. To take, to pay back what was lost. Man, this church was going through some serious stuff. Now, they hadn't shed their blood yet. There weren't perhaps martyrs yet in this church. But they had their properties confiscated. They were subject to public ridicule. They would hold them up and ridicule them in front of everyone. They were losing material things. And so now this preacher is saying, remember what was said in Isaiah. He did that before. He said, you know, you've forgotten the encouragement. He said that a few verses back. He's saying God will recompense. He will restore everything that's lost. He will take vengeance. We know vengeance. Comes real easy for humans, doesn't it? Vengeance, punishment, retribution for injury. God will bring those. May not bring it yet in this life. That's why it's eschatological. We may lose our lives. The church that met there in Rome may not ever get their properties restored in this life. But there is a day that's coming where God will save their lives. Though their bodies may die, though they may fail, God will save them and bring them to himself. And those who are apart from Christ, those that have brought persecution to the church, God will take vengeance upon them. It was something for them to look forward to. Man, the church is the bride of Christ. Fathers, husbands, who among you wouldn't want to stalwartly defend your wife if someone came against her? Somebody even looks at my wife the wrong way. There are times as a father when maybe, maybe, I'm going to say definitely because I know some of them are in here right now, maybe they mouthed off to my wife. Maybe. They gave her a dirty look, and the husband hackles came up. Don't you talk to my wife that way. I wouldn't let a perfect stranger talk to my wife that way, let alone you. Now, put yourself in the place of God here, the bride of Jesus Christ. We are the beloved, the chosen before the foundation of the world began. And then here we are. God has saved us fully and finally. We are redeemed in totality, standing in the presence of God. But yet at the great white throne judgment, those who persecuted the church are now standing before God. Vengeance. That's a God I don't want to experience. That's a God, if you're here by faith in Christ, you will never have to experience. You may see it, and that even alone would terrify you. You know, our flesh gets caught up in wanting revenge for the wrong things that have been done to us. But you've never seen God truly get angry. That's why preachers in the past would always say, and it's from the scripture really, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God. We have no clue. The world likes to talk about God as being angry. They have no idea. We do because we have prophecies telling us there is a time coming where God will take vengeance on the wicked. 
But when you start thinking about that, we should be filled with compassion and love for the lost. Go out there and reach them for Jesus Christ because we don't want them to experience that. We want them to experience the grace and the love of God through Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit that he gave to us. This relationship that we have with our God through Christ, we didn't deserve any of it, and we know that. And we experience a love of God that we've never thought possible. We need to take that now to the world so they don't have to experience this. But there is that day coming. And sometimes when we're running this race of faith and we go through such difficulties and trials, it's easy to get exhausted. That's why he says strengthen. You see, in this passage of Isaiah 35, he's not just saying strengthen yourself. In fact, 35, Isaiah 35 is pretty clear. Encourage the exhausted. Assuming it's not you, it's somebody else. There is this sense here in this passage that we are to take the discipline, the knowledge, the love and grace of God that we've received, not only apply it to our lives when we're struggling, but to apply it to the people around us. We're in this race as a group. When you think of a race, you think of competitions. Yes, we're not competing against each other. We all have lanes. Sure, it's a track, but we don't compete against one another. We're all running together. This is why participation in the local body of Christ is so vitally important. This was starting to happen to the church here in, at Rome in, in the book of Hebrews. They, that's why he says, don't forget to gather together often. I can't believe you wouldn't want to do that. That's kind of the sense. Because as we run this race of faith, we will become exhausted at some point or another. The strongest among us will become exhausted the most passionate can become the most discouraged. And we need one another. We need to encourage each other. We need to remind each other who God is and what he plans on doing. Not only in your own life, but in the world around us. Strengthen those hands. Get a grip. Work on your form. Don't let it fall. Don't you know who God is? Strengthen your knees. Don't let them totter because if your knees are weak, you're going to go all over this way and not forward. Move forward. Encourage one another here. That's what we do. It's not just for ourselves. And this isn't just something that's unique to Isaiah 35 or Hebrews chapter 12. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Do we have any unruly among us? We need to admonish them. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. And this is coming on the heels, that passage is coming on the heels of the Apostle Paul talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's like, admonish, encourage. Romans chapter 15, you don't have to turn there because I'm asking you to turn to a lot later on in this message. But Romans chapter 15, verse 1 now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just to please ourselves. So 15 is, chapter 15 of Romans is part of this whole uh, application of all of the doctrine that he had just talked about all the way through uh, chapter, tw uh, chapter 11. And now he's saying this is how you apply it to your life. And he finally gets to 15 and he says, 
We need to encourage each other. You in this room right now who are strong, maybe you've gone through some trials, you feel the strengthening of God in your life. There are people in our midst who are weak and exhausted and battered from the world. It's up to us to take the strength that God has given us through discipline. That's where we get it from. And then apply it to people around us and not just please ourselves. Not to take strength and do something just for me. I'm so happy. I'm resting on my laurels. Hey, I'm on a spiritual high. I'm on a mountaintop. Good, you're on a mountaintop. Well, go slide down the other side of the valley where the people are. Encourage them. Help them out. This is how we walk through this. Pick up those knees and run. That's what we have to do. That's something when we were always slacking in the military running in formation, which I didn't like running in formation because usually a lot slower and would pound on the knees a little bit. Pick up those knees. Pick up those knees and run because the higher you put your knees up, the more it would propel you forward. Lift up your hands. Get a grip. Pick up your knees. Push forward. But while you do it, look around you. There are people that will fall behind if we don't. We're in a group racing toward this goal. That's why we need each other. Look back when you're strong. Is someone falling behind? Are they struggling with sin? Are they exhausted in their race that they have? Slow down a little bit. Meet them where they are. Encourage them. Grab them by the hand if necessary and pull them forward till the Lord gives them strength. This is what he's saying. And that's only verse 12. Verse 13, he kind of carries, in Hebrews 12, verse 13, he carries that, that a little bit further. And he says, make straight paths for your feet. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Well, like a good preacher, he's using an Old Testament text. This time he's not really paraphrasing it. So let's look at it. Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 26 and 27. Proverbs 4, 26 and 27. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Watch the path of your feet. Anybody not look where they were going? Do you ever see somebody that just kind of stares up while they walk and they end up tripping on something? It's easy to do. Here we're to watch the path for our feet and that we would be, our path would be established. What does that word established means? <coughs> Pardon me. It means firm, put right, to correct. And he's talking about sin here because he says in verse 27, turn your foot from evil. Clear the path ahead of you. This is what discipline and training does for us. It teaches us what's sin and what's not sin. What sin we have in our own lives because sin trips us up every single time. This goes back to what the, the preacher of Hebrews says in verse 1. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. Look where you're going. Look at the path ahead of you. This is why discipleship is so important. Training when we gather together. Because oftentimes, I mean, we come into the Christian faith from the world. We have a lot of things that we need to unlearn. We're to transform, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
How do you do that? By getting into the word of God, listening to good messages, encouraging one another. There are pitfalls, pitholes in front of us that we are even unaware that we're going to run right into it if we don't keep our eyes open on the path. And sometimes we need to do that for others too. There's a way to do it right and there's a way to do it wrong. But it's always been the case, Cain and Abel. You know Cain and Abel? First generation of human beings. Giving offerings to the Lord. Cain's was rejected because it was of the cursed earth. Abel's was accepted because it was the firstborn and the choice of the flock. What happened? Cain killed Abel. What did God do? Did God know Abel was dead? Of course he did. He was trying to draw repentance out of Cain. He goes to Cain. He said, where's your brother? What was Cain's response? What am I, my brother's keeper? Yes. That was an implied, that was the reason for the question, Cain. Where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely. Are you your brothers and sisters keepers here? Absolutely. We do it with grace. Lots and lots of grace. We do it with patience. In fact, that's what we read in 1 Thessalonians. Be patient with everyone. The word to help clear the path, not only that's before us, but the path that might be in front of other people. Sin trips us up. We all know what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 about the fruit of the Spirit. But we often forget that he talks about the fruit of the flesh. That is just before that. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, strife, enmity, outbursts of anger, factions, dissensions. He says the fruit of the flesh is evident. These are the things that will keep you from running. Sometimes we're just not even aware that we do it. It's so automatic for us to sin. These idols that are in our heart, these ways of doing things are just like autopilot for us. We need to get into the word. We need to get discipled and we need to encourage one another. I mean, this is a common theme. John the Baptist, what did he say in Luke 3, 4? Make straight the paths for the Lord. Don't let anything hinder him from the mission that he's on. Proverbs 3, verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. There is this sense, and we're going to get into that in just a moment, that yes, God makes our path straight when you acknowledge him. But there is that sense that we need to do some smoothing out ourselves. That's why the Christian life is not passive, but too often we want it to be, or we act like it is. I'm just going to wander from event to event. Let life happen to me. Instead of sitting down with other believers, encouraging each other in the Lord, learning what the will of God is. That's how you acknowledge him in Proverbs chapter 3. And start clearing the path for things that will entangle you and will trip you up. But back to Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 13. Make straight the paths for your feet. And here's the promise. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Interesting imagery. We're to encourage each other. We're to make straight the paths because we have lame legs spiritually. Lame feet and if we're not clearing these paths up, the things that are injured in our life, the things that are not fully sanctified yet in our life, when we trip them up, it's going to make things worse. 
you know, that you could use that phrase and actually, you know, like, it's dislocated. And you're wobbling all over this track, going from one pitfall after another. But the reality is that if we straighten our paths, if we help other people straighten their paths and warn them about the things that are ahead of them, there's healing promised here in this passage. And I don't want us to think we're being charismatic here because he is talking about a spiritual kind of healing. You remember what James said, James chapter 5. I'll read it for you, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Let me just stop right there. That's something we generally don't do so much anymore. We're afraid we're going to get too Catholic, Roman Catholic, I should say. Confession. Yeah, it says confess. That's not saying confess to a priest who can only be the one to absolve you. He says confess your sins to one another. Brother, I struggle with this. And sometimes I wander into sin and temptation don't even realize how I got there in the first place. The other one comes along and says, don't worry, I'm going to help you. I'm going to run with you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to help you see the things that are in the way because I want you to be healed. I want you to be sanctified. James says, pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, a lot of people will take that verse out of context and apply it to healing, physical healing. I don't think that's what he means there because in verse 15, he talks about physical healing. Then verse 16, he's starting to talk about confessing sin so that you can be healed. There's a spiritual healing that he's talking about here in this passage. We need that and we need each other. When's the last time that you confessed your sin to a brother or sister in Christ? I mean, confessed your sin to them. I encourage you to do that. Once you do it once, it becomes easier. It's always that icebreaker moment. But we just love to hide things that make us feel ashamed. We want to hide things. We want to minimize things. We don't want to bring it out because, God forbid, if they knew I struggled with X, they would think less of me. Not if we're all members of the body of Christ. Not if we're all on the track. Not if we're all running together. Not if we all know that we go through these times where I struggle with this, you struggle with that. I'm strong today. I'm strong this week. Let me encourage you while you're weak. And vice versa. We don't judge one another for these things. We encourage one another. We don't beat people up over the scriptures. We use them as a tool to impart grace into their life. That's how God does things. But we have to be willing and humble to confess our sins to each other so that we can run this well. Men, again, we're not competing against each other in this race. That's the whole mentality of I can't let people in. I got to keep a close armor, keep everything close to the vest. That's competition mentality. That's looking around the room and saying, ooh, I want to be like them. I want to race faster than them. They're in this position. I want to get to a higher position. I can't show my weaknesses. That's, that's not good. That's what the world tells us. Don't show weakness. Hide your weakness. God says, admit your weakness. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to one another. So we all, as a group, as a church, cross the finish line together. That's why we run. Yes, we run individually. but We run as a group. It's a group run. This is what it means to be Christ's body. If we know that our body has a problem, we deal with it. We don't hide it. We don't minimize it. 
This is what it means to be the church. And that's why. This is how we incorporate the discipline, the training regimen that God has brought into our lives is that we strengthen ourselves and we strengthen one another. But there's another. Be steadfast in achieving the goals of the race. Be steadfast. So the first was be strong and strengthen others. This one is to be steadfast in achieving the goals of the race. Let's look at verse 14 together. So I think at the first part of that, you know, the first point, you're probably like, yeah, amen, we can do this. This is great. Let's go to the tough stuff. Pursue peace with all men. All right. <laughs> Let's have, we got in trouble already. This is really hard. You didn't say just pursue peace with those of us that are in the room here today. Pursue peace with all men. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Really strong statements here. And these again are the imperative. You pursue peace. You pursue sanctification. Work at it. It's hard. That's why it's a pursuit. It's running away from you. You have to chase it. These are the goals of the race. The twin goals are to pursue peace with all men and sanctification with God. Let's look at this. They're tied together. Chapter 12, verse, verse 10, we read that last week. It says that God disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness. So he mentions holiness in verse 10. Verse 11, he mentions peace. Now verse 14, he mentions peace, and then he gets to holiness. He's connecting and tying the concepts of peace with all men and holiness together. They're bound together. They're inseparable. They come as a package. You can't have one without the other. Though we try. I think many of us say, oh, I want to be sanctified. But man, that guy over there can't stand him. No, it comes as a package. In fact, I would argue that you can't be sanctified fully with God unless you're at peace with all men. I think it's important. Peace. Let's talk about peace. This is the major goal of discipline. Peace with all men refers to our horizontal relationships with people. You know what Jesus said? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it's talking about. Turn, turn with me to 1 uh, Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verse, starting with verse 8. This is a summary on how to be at peace with all men. 1 Peter 3. Which I find very ironic in God's grace and mercy, his paradigm. Because if anybody wasn't going to be at peace with all men, it would be Peter. He was the guy that was brash and ran his mouth a lot. He was the guy that cut the, you know, cut the ear off of the high priest's servant there with his sword when he thought they were coming for Jesus. And yet now he's talking about being at peace with all men. Look at verse 8. To sum up, okay, all this godly living that he's talking about so far in this passage. To sum up, all of you be harmonious. Be in harmony with each other. Be harmonious. Sympathetic. It's hard to be at odds with someone if you're being sympathetic with them. Harmonious, sympathetic brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. How could we not be at peace if we're exercising these qualities? 
harmony with one another, not looking for rancor or discord with each other or looking to start a fight or poke that push that little red button that's just dangling out there begging for us to push. Oh, they can push my buttons. We look for those kinds of things. <coughs> Pardon me. He said, be harmonious, be sympathetic, understand where they're coming from, which means we have to listen. You can't be sympathetic if you don't know what their point is. And so often we say we're listening, but all we're really doing is crafting our next argument of what to say, so we're not really listening to what they're saying. Listen to what people have to say, summarize it, and give it back. So if I hear you correctly, if people, people come and come to counseling, if they're willing to admit that, they'll tell you that I say that all the time. Now, I want to make sure I understand. You're telling me, and I try to rephrase what they said. I'm trying to show that I'm being sympathetic, that I understand what they're saying. Be brotherly. Not like human brothers, because brotherly might mean something completely different. Be brotherly in the Lord, in the spirit. Kind-hearted. Being kind instead of mean-hearted people. Humble in spirit. Why is that important? Because you're considering them more important than you. That's what being humble in spirit is about. If we are considering others greater than ourselves, it's really hard to fight with them. It's really hard to be not at peace with them. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Oh man, that's just the human experience, isn't it? When we're kicked, we want to kick back. When they say a snappy little thing about us, we want to craft a really great snappy response right back to them. No, Isaiah 35 tells us that in the coming eschaton, when God comes back, he will bring recompense. He will bring vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When we come back with an insult for insult, we're trying to get revenge for what they've done. Trying to protect my own honor here. How dare they say that about me? To be at peace with all men means we're humble in spirit and we're not trading barbs with each other. We refuse to get involved with that. Giving a blessing instead. I like that. Not trading insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Have you ever tried doing that? It's a lot harder than you think. When your first inclination is to give them a good one, God bless you. And not sarcastically. Because I know you've been cut off in traffic and you wanted to lay into them things that they will never actually hear, but, you know, in the confines of your own car. You want to say something to them and then you kind of catch yourself, you know, oh, may God bless you. Bless your heart. <laughs> we don't really want God to bless their heart. We're mocking them. <laughs> no, but give them a blessing. So if you know that you're not at peace with somebody, maybe that's the first thing that you do. God, help me to craft a blessing for this person. Because you know it doesn't come naturally to me, Lord. Help me to think how I can bless this person verbally and perhaps physically as well. Let me bless them. See how hard that is? But that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means when the preacher of Hebrews says to be at peace with all men. He said, give a blessing, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Oh, we love that part. I'm going to inherit a blessing, but I don't want to give one away. Here's God's graciousness in giving blessings that we never deserved, even if we wanted it. It's amazing. 
That's why it's hard. That's why he, we're told in Hebrews to pursue it because it doesn't come easy. It chases us, it makes us chase it because it's not natural. Let's go back to uh, our text in Hebrews chapter 12. He says something rather strong here. He says, pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Well, sanctification, that's another major goal of discipline. It talks about our vertical relationship with God. You remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's, that's sanctification. That's holiness. Back in um, verse 10, when he said you may share in his holiness and discipline is training us for holiness, he's talking about sanctification. And we know there's two parts to sanctification here. Initial. That's when you're initially sanctified, you're positionally right before the Lord. So if Christ comes back before your sanctification is complete, which it won't be, and so Christ calls you home, you'll be okay, you will be saved, God will take you to himself. But there is this progressive, growing nature of sanctification. You know, verse 10 said that we may share his holiness. So that implies that it's a gift. But here he says pursue sanctification. So is it a gift or is it something that we work at? It's both. Salvation is monergistic. It's a work of God and God alone. Progressive sanctification, we partner with the Lord and the Holy Spirit. This is why we practice good spiritual disciplines. This is why we pray fervently and often, why we're in the word constantly, why we're in worship corporately and privately. These are the tools that God uses to sanctify us. John 17, verse 17, Jesus said, he was praying to the Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then 24, he says, so that they will see my glory. That's the purpose of it. Are you sanctified? Are you being sanctified? Are you pursuing sanctification? Are you pursuing discipleship and learning? Are you pursuing uh, body life here in Christ, serving others, being in worship constantly? Are you pursuing these kinds of things? That's how you pursue sanctification. These are the goals of the race. Peace with all men and sanctification. That's why we must be steadfast on achieving those goals. That's what discipline is training us to do. But we do have one more way to incorporate discipline in our lives. is to be serious about those who refuse to run. To be serious about those who refuse to run. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Now, there's a lot of difficulty in this passage. People will trip over some of these things. So I'm going to break this down as easily as I can. See to it. There's your imperative. It's on you. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. What does that mean? 
Coming short of the grace of God are those that fall behind in the race. Those that are weak. Or those that drop out of the race because they're lost. See to it that those among us. Now remember, he's speaking to a community of believers here. See to it that those among you don't either fall behind in the race because of their weakness and we're ignoring them. And see to it that those don't leave your midst because you're constantly reaching them for Christ because if they leave your midst, where are they going to hear the gospel anymore? I mean, we're talking about a time frame here where there wasn't a church on every corner. If they left the body of Christ, the church that met there in Rome, that was it. Where are they going to hear the gospel? See to it that they don't leave here. Falling behind makes you easy prey. You see the nature documentaries, right? What are the animals, the lions and the cheetahs and stuff? What do they go after? Not the strongest and the fastest. The weakest. The young. Young in the faith. The sick. Those of us that are weak and struggling with this race. Falling behind makes you easy prey. That's why you come back as a herd, as a body of Christ. Surround the weak. Surround those who might become easy prey if left alone. And again, dropping out means that you were lost. John says in 1 John, they went out from among us because they were not of us in the first place. And I'm sure in a room this size, there might be some of us who are contemplating dropping out of the race because you weren't really saved to begin with. If that's you, if the Lord is pricking your heart, do business with God today. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon God while he may be found. He'll answer you when he is near. Trust in Christ Jesus and what he has done for you. Give up your pride. Give up you trying to figure life out on your own. Christ paid the penalty of sin if you had put your faith in him. Trust in his work, not your own. And get in this race with all of us and let us run together. I mean, we've got guardrails here. Don't come short of the grace of God. We've got some guardrails. I mean, we know John 10, 28, 1 Peter 1, 5. We don't have time to look at those. But those verses tell us that those who are saved are kept by the power of God. We know this. We don't believe here that you can lose your salvation. It's not a gift that you earn. It's not a gift that you lose. But the reality, the truth of our faith is proven by persevering to the end. That's why we don't prefer to say once saved, always saved, although it's true in its technical sense. But we say those who are truly saved will persevere all the way to the end. They don't drop out of the race. They make it to the end. I mean, Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That's why we do this together. We're to look after each other and get serious about those among us who look like they're not running. He quotes another Old Testament passage here when he talks about the root of bitterness. When he said that, the church would have immediately turned their attention, their minds to Deuteronomy 29, 18. That there would not be among you a man or woman or tribe or family whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God and go and serve the gods of the nations that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. The context of that passage, that particular passage, is Moses reminding them why the first generation of Israelites coming out of Egypt 
did not enter the promised land and died in the wilderness. It was because they turned away from the Lord. Because of their idolatry. This is what he's calling to, to mind when he quotes this passage. The roots cause stumbling. It slows us down. Bitterness takes away our peace. It takes away our joy. And it defiles others. Bitterness loves company. I never met anyone who was bitter against someone and kept it to themselves. Just doesn't work that way. They want to evangelize their bitterness to other people. That's why he's saying, don't let the root of bitterness trip you up. Because if it does, then it'll take as many people down as possible. And meanwhile, we're a church that's stumbling on the track end over end instead of running forward. Look out for one another. Encourage. If you have bitterness in your heart, do business with the Lord. Ask him to bring healing to your life because it will spread he continues on verse 16 saying, see to it again, no immoral or godless person is among you. Immorality and godlessness run opposite of peace and holiness, doesn't it? Immorality destroys peace. It doesn't want to seek other people's good. It wants only self-gratification. Immorality destroys families, individual lives, businesses, reputations, churches. Immorality destroys godlessness. No thought of God whatsoever. Therefore, not sharing in his holiness. And the example that he uses to tie all this together is Esau. Interesting. They would have immediately known. We might need a little, little context. But Esau here stands as the single example of unbelief. He had no thought of God and was most interested in self-gratification. And what's really interesting about him bringing this up is that he talks about in the previous chapter all these heroes of the faith. Many of them. And here's one guy in chapter 12 that didn't do it like them. And his name was Esau. You might remember the story. Abraham had a child, Isaac. Isaac had two kids, Esau and Jacob. The promise was going to go through the line of Jacob. But Esau really had no thought of God's covenant with Abraham. He was focused on earthly things. He only thought of himself. He traded his birthright. He despised his birthright. By selling it for some food. That's how interested in self-gratification this man was. He only thought of himself. And he only became sorry when he saw the consequences of what he had done. He wasn't sorry for his sin. His depraved attitude. Not caring about God's covenant. Or even being part of this family. Even though the, the promises wouldn't come through his line. He's part of this amazing legacy of faith. His father, his grandfather, none of that made a dent in his mind. He didn't care. All he wanted was what he wanted. And he despised his birthright, made a mockery of his family lineage. And then when the birthright goes to Jacob, now all of a sudden he's all concerned and worried. And he cries and he's bitter. It's only because of the consequences. That's why there's no repentance for him. He didn't want repentance to bring him life. He wanted repentance to get him out of the consequences of his sin. I wonder, are there any Esau's among us? It's not always immediately apparent. Are you here struggling with the root of bitterness? Are you concerned about the things of God? 
Do you need to repent from your sin? Now is the time to do this. You know, I have a, I read a passage. It's interesting. I, I saw this in, in a John Piper uh, Desiring God article, and I thought it fit really well, really short of time, but I really want to read this. And they talk about this hypothetical church member named Mr. A, which I thought was really neat because in my introduction, I crafted a man named Alex. So Mr. A is a member of the church. He was baptized years ago, still professes faith, and shows up routinely on Sundays. While he isn't known for possessing much love for Jesus or much zeal for spiritual things, neither is he known for being an open sin. He's nice enough. He serves from time to time. He doesn't get, avoid getting into a conversation on his way out the door. He struggles with his set of sins, but who among us doesn't? While he sits in the same pew week after week, truthfully, not many would notice if he left. He's not exactly a model of a hearty believer, but he is a member still. Is he growing in holiness? You can't really tell. Is he increasing in the knowledge of Christ? Hard to say. Does he really love the brethren? Well, it depends on what you mean by love of the brethren. Does he love God? Maybe deep down inside. You've attended church with Mr. A. Perhaps you've overlapped in a small group with him. But for all of that, his heart for the Lord hasn't really surfaced much. He blends into the pew from Sunday to Sunday like a fake plant in the corner of the sanctuary. The years pass. He raises a family. His daughter sings in the children's choir. His wife occasionally cooks meals for church gatherings. He never commits grave immorality. He never promotes heresy. He never stops coming. His gravestone eventually reads, Here lies Mr. A, Christian husband, father, churchman. To put it plainly, men like Mr. A are far too common and far too comfortable in too many churches because they sleep themselves into hell. Don't be a Mr. A. Get in that race and run. Trust in Christ. Look out for Mr. A's around us. Look out for the Alexes that are not putting their training to work for them to run. Encourage one another. Strengthen yourself and others. Be steadfast toward the goals of holiness and sanctification. Be serious among those who refuse to run. And let's finish this run well. Let's finish it together. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Almighty, maker and possessor of heaven and earth. It's amazing the grace that you truly bestow upon us, not that we deserved any of it at all. But yet in your kindness, you bless us. It's a blessing to even know who you are. But yet you took that step farther. You sent your son to die for our sin, for the thing that separates us. You drew us to yourself. You regenerated our heart. You allowed us to look into the face of Christ. And when all hope was lost, you granted us the gift of faith. I pray for those here. It might be a Mr. A or, or an Alex. Help them. Help them to get in the race. Help them to trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. For those of us, help us to get a greater sense that we're in this race together. Let us run together, Lord. Let us finish together. Keep disciplining us. In Jesus' name, amen.